We were created to belong. And we seek belonging, right, in community, in our career or trade, in our favorite team or hobby, in our educational groups or fraternities or HOAs, political groups, gender-oriented groups, religious communities that are monotheistic or polytheistic or, ironically, atheistic. We seek belonging in interest or cause groups, art-based groups, even brands, families, and friends. And what's fascinating is that each community has some type of initiation process, some type of also accompanying symbol or badge or a flag. We see this in family crests, team logos, gang signs, symbols like the peace symbol. We see this in national, state, or group flags like the American flag, the Oregon flag, the LGBTQ plus flag, the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter flags. And all of this shows that we are created to belong, that we were created to have community around us, to fly the flag, and to bear the crest. But what if we're talking about the church? Not only globally, but locally. What about the local church? What must happen for us to belong to Christ and his people in the church? What sets a local church apart as a, a unique community? And what is the family crest of the church? Well, please open in your Bible to John. To John chapter 13. If you are new to the reading of the Bible, you could find one in a pew near you. You could find John on page 886. 886. Six. We'll all be helped to keep our Bibles open to John 13 today. And if you're, as you're turning there, um, last week we finished the first half of John, John chapters one through twelve, and that section is called the has been called the Book of Signs. Well, the second half of the Gospel, according to John, is called the Book of Glory. And that's verses or chapter 13 through 21. Per our usual pace, we're going to unpack the whole chapter, but please follow as I just read through the first 17 verses of John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. Well, was, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and re- resumed his place, he said to them, you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then am your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray once again. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would open your word to us. Open us up to your word. Reform us. Revive us. Restore us. Rejuvenate us through your word. Open our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would calm your spirit now, this spirit now, to preach and open your word faithfully and clearly. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, just to get our bearings in in John, the first 12 chapters, we have beheld the person and work of Jesus in all of his glory, and we have seen the one who is the promised lamb rescuer, the sovereign relationship initiator, the amazing sign worker, the kingdom inaugurator, the new heart maker, the Messiah redeemer, the savior healer, the greater prophet and soul satisfier the spiritual thirst quencher, the majestic light bringer, the great I am and sight giver, the good shepherd and savior, the resurrection and life giver, the one who is anointed king and is worthy of all of our allegiance. All glory be to Christ. Amen? Amen. If you've been paying close attention in John thus far, you have likely noticed that there has been a movement toward an hour, an anticipated hour. And that hour is not a literal 60 minutes, but that hour includes the final moments of Jesus' life, as well as his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that hour was first mentioned back in chapter 2, when just before Jesus turns water into wine in Cana, he tells his mother what? My hour has not come. And then the anticipation of that hour continues to grow in John from chapter 4 to 5 to 7 to 8. And then in chapter 12, as we saw last week. And now we arrive at chapter 13 this morning. And we're told, verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that just before the Passover, that Jesus knew his hour had come. And in light of that hour commencing with the cross, on the horizon line, 
Here's the big idea of John 13. Here it is. The cross of Christ humbles us and shapes how we live. The cross of Christ humbles us and shapes how we live. And this main point is established in John 13 as we look at the basin in verses 1 through 17. And then the betrayal in verses 18 to 30. And then lastly, the blueprint in verses 31 to 38. So the basin, the betrayal, the blueprint. You'll have time to write those down as we work through the chapter. So point one, the basin. As we just read there in those first 17 verses of John 13, this morning we have the privilege to step into the room, the upper room, where Jesus and His disciples are, and to hear the beginning of Christ's farewell sermon, and to learn from Him. And we see here in verse 1 that it's just before the Passover. Jesus knows that His hour is at hand. He will soon depart from the world. And John wants us to, here at the start, have assurance that Jesus loves those who are His. And notice, He loves them to the end. And so, it is critical that we understand that what is said and done in this chapter is an overflow, an outflow of Christ's deep and enduring love for His people. Well, there, we arrive then at at verse 2, and we discover that one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, is not one of his own and is going to betray him. And we'll hear more on him a little later. But then in, in verse 3, the scene shifts to us beholding Jesus, who has all authority, as the text says. And he rises from the meal and begins to wash the disciples' dirty feet, one by one, including Judas. And this was an action, has been noted, that the disciples wouldn't even dare to do, even for their, for their teachers. This was reserved for the lowest of servants, let alone the Savior of the world. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus here. And what we must see is that there's so much more going on here than mere foot washing. So let's look closely, a little more closely, at verses 3 through 5. I want us to notice six actions, six things that that Jesus does here in slow motion. He gets up. He lays aside his garment. He picks up a towel and wraps it around himself. He pours water into a basin. He then washes his disciples' feet. Then he gets up. He returns and sits down. We see that in verse 12. Now, as he's doing this, There's a conversation that happens between Jesus and one of his disciples, a man named Peter. Starting there in verse 6, Peter says, Lord, come on, you wash my feet? Peter's confused. But then Jesus assures him, verse 7, he says, though you don't understand now, oh, you will later. And in response, Peter has what I call a Gandalf moment in verse 7. Eight, he essentially says, you shall not wash my feet. And this tells us that instead of being thankful and marveling at Christ's humility and receiving this 
gesture of kindness and grace. Peter's moved from confusion to prideful resistance at the sacrificial act of Christ washing his feet. But notice what Jesus says at the close of verse 8. He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying, if I don't wash you, you cannot belong to me. And Peter responds, well then, Lord, then you've got to wash all of me. Wash my, my head and my hands and my feet. Well, by including this conversation, this back and forth between Jesus and Peter, John is providing an explanation for what, for what Jesus is actually doing here in this foot washing. And so in light of this conversation, and remembering those six actions that happened and happens in these verses, uh, and, I'm, and I'm deeply indebted to my late and dear pastoral mentor, John Svensson, for some of the insights and explanation into this. But again, note what Jesus does here. Jesus gets up. He lays aside his garment. He picks up a towel, wraps it around him. He pours water into a basin. He washes his disciples' feet. And then he returns and sits down there in verse 12 a little later. And here's what we must see what's going on here. Ready for this? Are you with me? This moment of foot washing is a foreshadowing of the gospel. The gospel work that Jesus has already begun to do and will accomplish in the rest of John. For Jesus got up and left the Father's side. He then laid aside His splendor. He then picked up and put on a robe of frail humanity. He then went to the cross where His blood was poured out so that all of His, all of whom He loved can be, as verses 10-11 through 11 says, washed completely clean. And then three days later, what did Jesus do? He got up. And then He later ascended back to the Father's side where He reigns in power and glory. So do you see that these actions here are connected, are foreshadowing that Gospel work that Jesus has started and will, will fully accomplish in, in this Gospel? How amazing is that? What humility, what love, what grace. And so this foot washing here is a portrait of the Gospel. And it's this message, this, this Gospel that ought to ultimately humble us to our core. And so here's that good news, right? In light of this Gospel, it's this, that all who repent of their sin, that sin of, of unclean thoughts and words and actions that rebel against God and believe and place their faith in Christ alone can be washed and made completely clean by the blood of Jesus and belong to Him. This is the good news of the Gospel for every Christian in this room. And so if you are here today and you do not know Jesus, your desire is to be washed clean. You desire to be washed clean. Clean from the dirt of sin. Shame. Guilt. Past. Present. And future. Then go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He stands ready to wash you. To forgive you. To save you. And to walk with you in ongoing repentance. and ongoing belief in Him in the context of a local body of believers.
So if you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I'd love to talk with you. You could find another one of the elders, pastors here. We'd love to talk with you. Or you could find someone in the pew smiling as I was giving that good news of the gospel. We would all love to talk with you. But beloved, the good news of John 13 is that if you are in Christ, you have been made clean, washed once and for all in the blood of Jesus, in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, you can declare what we sang a moment ago, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but I am now washed white as snow. And it's because of Jesus and His washing and His saving work alone that though sin once defined you, brother, sister, there is now, therefore, because of the work of Christ. No condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Well, it's here where I'd like to briefly address an ad, a commercial that was played during the Super Bowl last week. It was that ad, the call that he gets us ad. How many of you saw this? Most of us. If you haven't seen it, um, in this commercial, there were different images of, of people imitating Jesus and washing uh, other people's feet. The commercial showed uh, different people from all different walks of life um, and, and people washing the feet of the homeless or, or the woman outside an abortion clinic with anti-abortion people in the background. Um, and then there was also an image of a, of a priest or a pastor washing the feet of a man in, or seemingly from the LGBTQ plus community. The images are thought-provoking, and they're very emotion-packed, emotion-provoking. Uh, some of the ad was very powerful, but it was also, the core message was powerfully wrong. Because what the ad did was separate the humble act of foot-washing from the cross of Christ and His blood spilt for sinners and from sin and repentance. For as we've seen here in John 13, in the context of this chapter, Jesus didn't wash the feet of His disciples to affirm their sin like the ad suggested. No, the whole point of this humble service was that one must be washed in the blood of Jesus to be saved. And so if we separate the act of foot washing from mercy ministry, from the cross of Christ, from transformation in Him, and from the words, go and sin no more, then we have royally missed the point. Because in the end, Jesus washed the feet of His disciples to show them and us that the wages of sin was so great, so great, that He would have to die in order to save sinners like us. So we must not, we cannot separate Christian service from repentance of sin and transformation in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Well, in verses 12 through 17, Jesus asks, verse 12, do you know what I've done to you? And he goes on to help them understand that what he has done as their Lord and teacher is not only a foreshadowing of the cross, but an act of service, a principle of giving and receiving that is to be imitated and applied 
in gospel discipleship and sacrificial service toward others. We're going to unpack that further later on in point three. But as for now, we need to recognize in this room is that there was one in this, this powerful scene, right? In the midst of all of this, in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of this action, there is one in the room that does not belong who would betray Jesus. And that brings us to point two, the betrayal. Look with me at verses 18 to 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now because before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What are you going to do? Do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said these things to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Go and buy what we need for the feast, or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Well, our family has been recently watching a show called Is It Cake? It's a competitive baking show where a group of cake builders come together to make cakes that look like almost identical to um, like common items like shoes, tea kettles, toilets, clothing. Then they place the final creation next to the real identical item or items. And then a group of judges has to decide which one's real and which one is, you guessed it, cake. The show is very creative, very fun, and very ridiculous. But what the show reveals is this. Something can look like the real deal. Identical on the outside, but at the same time, on the inside, be counterfeit. Some things can look the part, but are in the end, traitorous. It be the same amongst people who claim to be Christians, disciples of Christ. That's what these verses reveal. For here in the upper room, we come face to face with a man who was called a disciple, who looked like the real deal, but was the greatest betrayer and traitor of all time. And it's a man named, as we're told, Judas. And this is not the first time we've seen Judas. If you remember, we've seen him earlier in the book. Uh, he was mentioned even last chapter, in chapter 12. And though we learned some things, or we have learned some things about Judas thus far in the book, uh, there's still been a little mystery around him and what he is going to do. 
until now. And here in this section, we find that Judas was, verse 18, chosen by God. That he broke bread with Jesus, signifying that he had deep fellowship with Jesus. And we also read that, Jesus would, that Judas would lift his heel against Jesus in treason. And that he would, verse 21, betray him. And here in the upper room, the disciples didn't know all of this yet, though. They didn't know that there was a, a betrayer amongst them. See, we have the advantage of knowing like all of, all of John, of knowing the rest of the, the, the story, the ending of the story, but that was not the case for the disciples. So this would have been shocking to hear the deeply troubled and sorrowful Jesus in verse 21 reveal this to them. Well, how do the disciples respond? Well, they're confused particularly Peter. He wants us to know. He wants to know, who is the traitor? Who is it? It's in the midst of this confusion, though, that the scene shifts, and we read in verses 23 to 25 that one of the disciples sitting at Jesus' side, the one whom Jesus loved, which is the author John, by the way, the, the author of this book, he asks, who is it? And Jesus tells John, we assume privately, because of how the disciples respond a little later, even in, this, in these verses. He asks, who is it? But John tells, but Jesus tells John, a beloved disciple, that the one who is about to receive a dipped morsel from his hand is the counterfeit disciple. And we read here that Jesus does what? He gives Judas the morsel. He eats it, and Satan possesses him. And Jesus tells him to go and do what he's going to do quickly. And the text says, verse 30, that after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out into the night. And this is not only speaking of literal night. John is doing what he's done in the, earlier in the, in the gospel, even all the way back to John 3 when, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. The point here is that Judas is in darkness and he is acting satanically and treacherously. So with all of these details of betrayal in place, I, wanna, I want us to have a handful of kind of takeaways here. Things that we can learn from this section. I have three. First, God is completely sovereign over the details of this betrayal. God is completely sovereign over this betrayal. Second, Satan is real. And three, Judas is a warning sign. So let's walk through these just briefly. First, God is completely sovereign over this betrayal. Make no mistake that God is completely, intimately, meticulously, intricately sovereign over heaven and earth. This is God's world. Nothing happens outside of his will. Nothing happens outside of his way. All things happen in accordance to his will. And if they don't, then he ceases to be God. What this passage reveals, it reveals just that, that nothing happens outside the sovereign control of Christ. For Judas was chosen in order to, verse 18, and this is key, to sovereignly fulfill the word of God. That's what we read here, that he was chosen to precisely fulfill Psalm 41, verse 9 where we read words penned by King David that King Jesus picks up here. 
that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Sound familiar? Here's the point. Christ is sovereign. He is not to be trifled with. And all things happen according to his word and will. And so, this wasn't surprising to Jesus. And this shouldn't be surprising to us. For Jesus created Judas. He knew Judas and therefore knew his heart. He knew him best. God is sovereign over this betrayal. But second, Satan is real. Satan is a real adversary. He is a real accuser. He is a real enemy of our souls. He is not as commonly understood a little red man in black tights with a pitchfork who has a really annoying voice. That's not, that's, that's not Satan. No, he's a real walking, scheming being. One who, according to Genesis 3, questions God and leads others to question God. He is the one who 1 Peter 5 says, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking others to devour. He is the one, according to 2 Corinthians 11, who parades around as an angel of light. Satan is real. He is scheming, malicious, and accusatory. And yet, he is fully under God's authority and limited in his power. For just as we saw in John 12, through the gospel achievements of Christ, Satan has been cast out. He has been bound. He is on a short leash. And he will be fully damned when Christ returns on the last day. But make no mistake, Satan is real and at work, but he cannot operate outside of the Lord's sovereignty. Third, Judas is a warning sign. Maybe you've seen those signs that show a cliff edge, like a car or a person falling off of it, and it says, beware of cliff. You've seen those kinds of signs? Well, this is what, this is what Judas is for us. Not only those outside the church, but those even inside the church. Because one of the scariest parts of this passage is that in the words of Puritan Thomas Goodwin, quote, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons, end quote. And yet, didn't truly know, didn't truly believe in Jesus. And so here's the application for us. It is possible for a person to be informed by facts about Jesus and not be transformed by Jesus. That is possible. It is possible for one to hear God's Word, to, to gather with God's people, to hear God's Gospel, to even come to church every Sunday, and not know Jesus. And on the last day, we'll hear from Jesus, depart from me. I never knew you. Just like Judas will. So friend, now is the time to check your heart. For this is possible. But how do you know? This is the question, right? How do you know if you are truly a disciple of Jesus? and not a counterfeit disciple. How do you know? Well, verse 20 gives us a clue. If you have repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by grace are living a life of ongoing repentance and faith, and you have a relationship with Jesus, then you have 
received him. And therefore, you have received the Father and have been given salvation by grace, by sovereign grace. And so if you are a Christian here today, may we part from this section in John 13, not with devastating fear, but with deeper assurance and hope in the gospel for the blood of Jesus. If you are a Christian, has washed you clean. You are Christ's. You are loved by Him. You belong to Him. The cross speaks a better word over you and over your life than sin or Satan. And you are loved by Him to the very end. And nothing will change that. Nothing. This should not lead us to self-dependency or spiritual pride or lazy faith. But this should lead us to deep thankfulness and deep humility. And this ought to give way to a life that is more and more shaped by the cross of Christ. And so, what does a humble, cross-shaped life look like? What does that look like? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Point three, the blueprint. Look with me at verses 31 to 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, in this section of John 13, Jesus has, as we've seen thus far, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, right, foreshadowing the gospel. Then in the middle section, we, we saw that Judas has already begun his, his betrayal sequence. He's gone out into the darkness. He has departed from Christ and his people. And we arrive at these closing verses of John chapter 13. And it's here we see that Jesus intimately, verse 33, intimately addresses his disciples. He calls them his little children. This is not condescending. This is endearing. He then explains here once again that the time has come for him to be glorified. Did you notice that glorified is mentioned five times in those two verses? And in his glorification, the Father will also be glorified. Again, this is indeed, the second half of John is indeed the book of glory. And that in a little while, Jesus says that he'll be leaving, speaking of his ascension to heaven, to the Father's side. And we are told that the disciples, his disciples, will seek him. And what's interesting here is how he told the unbelieving Jews, okay, track with me here, told the unbelieving Jews, those who didn't turn and believe in him, 
that he's going to leave and that they cannot come with him and that they will die in their sin. He said this back in chapter 8, verse 21. But here, Jesus doesn't say that to those who are his. He says to those who are his, if you seek me, though I leave now, though I leave now and you cannot come with me now, you will. As he tells Peter later in, there in verse 36, you will follow me later. And here, Jesus is once again drawing a line between those who are his and those whom he loves and those who are not his. And that line still exists today. But notice that it's in light of all of this that Jesus moves here to give his people, again, those whom he loves, the blueprint of what it looks like to be one of his humble children. To be one of his own. Here it is. He commands them, and us too, verses 34 to 35, to love one another just as I have loved you. For by this, all people will know that you are mine. That you are my disciples. And it's here where it's vital that we connect this command, this instruction, back to verses 1 through 17. Right? For after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said that this is a model, an example, a principle of sacrificial love that is worth imitating. For in that foot-washing action, he embodied and exemplified this type of servant leadership. The type of love a Christian is to show toward other Christians and those around him or her. For Jesus, again, is the master who became a servant. He is the one who came not to be served, but to do what? Serve and lay his life down for the many on the cross. And therefore, the cross of Christ ought to humble us. Christ's person and work ought to humble us and shape the way, again, we live. Not only people out there in Hillsborough and the surrounding area, not only in our homes, but here. Here at Hillsborough First Baptist Church. Because remember, again, context is key. Jesus is speaking here to those who are his. Judas has departed. He's addressing the leaven, whom he loves. And he's addressing us. He's speaking to his disciples then and now, who would go out and plant churches, or help plant churches, or revitalize churches, or be a part of churches like we're doing here this morning as the gathered people of God. So with that, what does humble cross-shaped, gospel-saturated love look like amongst God's people? What should that look like here at HFBC? I have 10 points. We're not going to spend an hour on each. I have 10 points, though. You ready? 10 points. A gospel, a cross-shaped life is lived out when we individually and collectively, feel free to write these down, prefer one another, bear with one another, Serve one another. Listen to one another. Forgive one another. Pursue peace with one another. Be hospitable toward one another. Seek the best for one another. Say the hard thing to one another. 
and 10. Be charitable toward one another. If you're taking notes, there will be time to write those down as we work through them. So let's, let's go. And as we're doing this, uh, think of maybe two people here in the life of this church. Maybe one that you, you, don't, you don't know and one that you do know. Think about ways you could apply this kind of love toward them and show this kind of love toward them. All right, so let's walk through these. A humble cross-shaped life is where we individually and collectively prefer one another. As we saw in the foot washing, in the work of Christ, in the gospel, Christ came down. He set aside his splendor. He set aside his, his, his place at the Father's right hand to come down to this earth to sinners in need of him. And in this, he ultimately preferred his people. And this is a model for Christians. So one way that we can prefer one another is by laying down our preferences, laying down our perspectives, laying down our prerogatives for the sake of one another. This doesn't mean that we're spineless and convictionless, but it does mean that we actively look for ways to set aside our way for the sake of another. So, what do your relationships look like here at HFBC? How are you preferring others around you? Second, looks like bearing with one another. We bear with one another. Paul, writing to the local church at Corinth, says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love bears all things. Well, but the only way that we could 1 Corinthians 13 one another is by knowing one another and getting to know one another, seeking ways to bear with one another in love. Even when another brother or sister sins against you, we are not to walk out. We are not to evade. We are not to shun and abandon ship. We are to pursue a better way of bearing with one another's weaknesses in love. You know, we actually see an example of this. I believe this is what's going on in verses 36 to 38, those last handful of verses, that interaction between, between Jesus and Peter. There, Jesus bears with Peter's overconfidence, his weakness, his ignorance. For Jesus says and knows that in a moment of weakness, what's Peter going to do? He's going to deny him. He's going to deny him, the very one he loves. And even though Peter says he's ready to die for Jesus, he will, again, he will deny him. But Jesus bears with him in love. And he says that even though he will die and rise and ascend, and where he is going, Peter can't follow, Jesus in love assures Peter that he will be able to later, in spite of his weakness. Praise God, we have examples like Peter of imperfect disciples in the Bible. So though we are weak and often fail, and we will, we will fail, let's seek to bear one another, bear with one another in love. And third, let's listen to one another. This is hard, but one of the greatest ways that that we can live out a cross-shaped life is by actually sacrificing our thoughts, our words, letting our words be few, and listening to another. Now, it's pretty easy to listen to those we like. 
Well, what about those who are difficult to us? Who we maybe don't like? Or those that we don't know? Those who are different than us here at HFBC? Let's engage and listen in love. Third, let's serve one another. Really, all of these 10 points are all examples of what it is to serve one another, right? To imitate Christ in in this way. So with the Lord's help, let's use our resources, our time, our calendars, our words, our money, our homes, all things that are God-given to serve one another in love. And let's also seek to forgive one another. Forgive one another. This is a big one. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32 that be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Beloved, forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is necessary. And simply put, forgiven people, forgive people. So let's do the hard work of forgiving as we have been forgiven in the cross of Christ. Now, I know that there are challenges and that there, there are exceptions. There may be even legal ramifications why something cannot be resolved. Or maybe you've sought forgiveness and the other, the other party will not give it to you in return. Or I know that there are exceptions. I know that there are situations that are challenging. I know. But let's work at this as a church body to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. For ultimately, where forgiveness is, their peace is often as well. So six, let's pursue peace with one another. What does this look like? Well, it looks like sacrificing our record of wrongs and pursuing unity in the bond of peace. And let's be clear, though we often treat peace like it's an option, it's not. It's not an option. Peace is an imperative. It's essential. And to have peace does not mean that we sacrifice truth and conviction, but it does mean that we speak the truth in love, that we share the truth in love, that we we live out the truth toward one another. And you guessed it, love in love. Let's pursue peace, not just individually, but collectively in love. Let's also be hospitable toward one another. You know, we talked about hospitality last week. We saw an example of this. Um, back in John chapter 12. Um, and, and here's the ultimate example of hospitality. It's that Jesus came and, and died for, for sinners, for strangers, right? While we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. That's hospitality right there. And so hospitality is so much more than inviting someone over for a meal that you may already know and love. Though that's a good thing. You should continue to do that. Amen. Praise God. But hospitality involves also loving the outsider, maybe someone who's different than you. Maybe inviting the stranger in. It involves, for example, inviting someone over for lunch after church that you don't know, that you haven't met before. And hospitality is not about talent and hosting, like you have to do it a certain way, like it requires like a five-course meal on fine china. No, 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 that's not, that's not it. It could be as simple as putting a, a pot of soup on and having people come over and eat it out of like a, a, you know, like a paper plate or a paper bowl. Being hospita- hospitable is an opportunity not to show off, but to show up for others and to sacrifice for others. 
So is your life marked by cross-shaped hospitality? Well, eight, let's also seek the best for one another. Do you seek the best for those around you? Particularly here in the church? Are you one that is known for seeking the best for those around you in the pew near you? Never ceases to amaze me how Jesus displays this. That he seeks the best for his people even to the point of death. So let's seek the best for one another. And also number nine, let's say the hard things to one another. This one is also hard. But one of the most sacrificial and most loving things that we can do is say the hard things to one another. Whether it's bringing up a potential blind spot in another Christian, bringing it to their attention. Maybe it's warning someone about a persistent pattern of sin that you just kind of see and notice in their life from the outside. Maybe it's sharing a personal sin struggle with a safe person. It could be a hard thing to share. Maybe it's simply calling out another member's sin in their life. We're called to say the hard things. Now, we can do this wrong. Here's the caveat. We could do this wrong. We could say the hard things from a position of self-righteousness, from pride, from malicious intent, and even from jealousy. Or out of fear of conflict, we might not say the hard thing at all. But we're not called to say the hard things in these ways, nor are we called to avoid conflict and neglect this. So let's share and say the hard things in love. We see an example of this once again in, in uh, 36 to 38, in verses 36 to 38, where Jesus tells Peter, a disciple that he loves, that he's going to deny him. That was a hard thing for Peter to hear, and yet he heard it from Jesus. Well, last but not least, a cross-shaped life individually and collectively involves being charitable toward one another. A charitable Christian is an overall gracious and humble Christian. A Christian that is humble and gracious toward those around him or her. And when I say charitable, I'm not saying like financially, though it may involve that at some point. I'm talking about spiritually. And so, beloved, a charitable person is a gracious person, one that oozes the humility of Christ and oozes the sacrificial love of Christ for others around them. So are you a charitable Christian? Are you known by what you are for and not only for what you are against? A charitable Christian is one who is quick to prefer others, bear with others, serve others, listen to others, forgive others, pursue peace with others, be hospitable toward others, say when necessary the hard things in love toward others, and be charitable to others. Brothers and sisters, these are not to be perfected in this life, but they are to be pursued in our life together by God's grace. So, how is the cross shaping your life today? Jesus has given us the blueprint right here. So, beloved, show me a, a healthy and vibrant and humble church, and I will show you a church that is cross-shaped and overflowing with the love of Jesus for one another. So once again, do, do these mark your life? Do these mark our life together?
these ten, uh, amongst others in Scripture, make up what Christian love looks like. Love is not just an emotion. This is what Christian love is. It's love in action. These are the marks that a local church ought to bear. Now, also, practicing these does not save us. But they assume that we understand the gospel. They assume that we're practicing and, and, and applying what the gospel demands of us. And they display that we are committed to Christ vertically and to one another horizontally. They're the blueprint of what godly love in a cross-shaped life looks like. So, with the Lord's help, with the Lord's help, let's pursue these ten together. Let's pursue Christ-like love together. Let's not simply be hearers and spectators of the Word, but doers of it. Well, we should close. In light of John 13, in light of John 13, returning to those questions asked at the beginning of our time, what must happen for us to belong to Christ and His people? We must be washed by the blood of Christ in the Gospel alone. What sets, second, what sets a local church, his body apart, as radically unique? Well, it's the gospel of Christ and the way it shapes our life together. And third, what is the symbol? What is the crest, the family crest of the church? It's the cross. The cross is our family crest. And it is the cross of Christ that ought to continually humble us and shape our lives until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would press the gospel further into our hearts and our minds, not only individually and collectively, that we would not simply be hearers, but doers of your word. And Lord, that we would bear the marks of Christian love. The marks that that display the work that you have done for sinners. Spirit, we ask that you would help us in this and that you would continue to mark us with a godly Christian love until Jesus, you return. And we do pray together, Lord, come quickly. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.